This series gives you a direct line to the pinnacle traders. We're covering everything from when the odds are initially posted to looking at how the market might react. This is the opening line. Hello and welcome once again to the opening line podcast. We've already done our odds analysis for week 14, so now it's time to go through the games in a little bit more detail and take a closer look at those matchups. The man who does all the hard work in that regard is back once again. Hello to Adam Chernoff. Four more weeks to go in the regular season. We're moving through these pretty quickly. Well, don't count down. We want it. We want it to keep going. <laughs> yeah, well, we get four weeks of playoffs after that, so it's still. It's basically like half a season is still left if you count the four playoff weeks. The best is yet to come, I think. I think so too. Right, we'll move on to our first game. We've got the Baltimore Ravens at the Buffalo Bills, and we suggested early in the week that there might be some appetite at the Ravens at minus five, and that's been the case as they've moved out to minus six, and the over/under is still on the same mark of forty-four, and. I think with this one, you mentioned that the the key here could be the Ravens' running game against against the Bills, and they've obviously got a very unique option in Lamar Jackson. But that said, the Bills have got a pretty good run game of them, their own, and they could get some success with that. So what are your thoughts for the game? Well, we're up to six now, and it's tilting towards six and a half. There was uh, a, one spot that I'm looking at on the odd screen that went to six and a half, and it didn't last too long. So it looks like... Uh, the price here at Pinnacle is going to get to six and a half. We'll see how long that lasts as well. But I think that the move, um, pretty indicative of what I would expect to see these two teams play out to. You mentioned the Baltimore Ravens run game. I, I don't think that that needs much press or explanation. They run the ball more than any team in the league, and they have a ton of success doing so. We match up against this Buffalo Bills defense. If there's one weakness that they have, it is defending the run. 19th in rushing success rate defense. And that's come against the easiest schedule of rushing offenses of any team through 13 weeks of the NFL season. So when you get sort of a weak, below average number like that, that is validated by a weak schedule, all of a sudden that 19th looks a lot worse. And something that they struggle with a lot too 31st in explosive rush defense. So they're matching up right against with their weakness to the strength of the Baltimore Ravens offense. I think that this is just such a great matchup for Baltimore. And really, if you're handicapping Buffalo, the popular sort of look and handicap this week is the Baltimore is going to have a letdown. How long can they sustain playing at this level? The letdown spot that they were supposed to have was coming off that win against the Patriots in what was that, week eight, week nine. When they went into division on the road to the Bengals, they won that game by 35 points. So it's like we're waiting for this letdown to come. But the way that this team is playing just suggests otherwise. And when you get a really favorable matchup like this, I don't know how Buffalo stops them on defense. And with with Jackson, just on him for a second, it seems, I mean, he can do what he wants, it seems at the moment. But there also there's a lot of this running to the outside that defenses just seem to be struggling to stop. So is it a case of the league just needs to pick up and adjust to that, or is there is it just nothing can be done to stop that? Well, it's really difficult to prepare for because the blocking scheme that Baltimore employs on their offensive line and the speed that they do it with is really unlike any other team in the NFL. So it's very difficult for defenses to get acclimated to that because a lot of the traditional prep that have gone on a week-to-week basis is just to defend a standard running game. But when you get these complex schemes, you get all the pre-snap motion, and you just get all of the speed, not only becomes difficult to key in on the ball carrier, but it becomes difficult to maintain your position and not get carried um, sort of out of your gaps. And it just, with the speed that Baltimore plays at, it's just so difficult uh, to stay disciplined and to stay where you are with so much movement in front of you. So... I think it's just a combination of how this team is designed, the creativity they have in their play calling and the speed that they have up front. I guess if there is sort of one sort of thing working in favor of Buffalo is that they do have a mobile quarterback of their own and Josh Allen that the defense practices against every single week. So it's not necessarily as foreign to an extent, uh, but it's just all about this blocking up front that Baltimore does so well where Buffalo really struggles. 
Right, so now we'll move on to the Washington Redskins at the Green Bay Packers, and it is a big handicap here. It's it's dropped ever so slightly since it opened at minus 14, and now we're on the Packers minus 13. A point has also come off the over-under, and it's on 41.5. So two wins on the bounce for the Redskins, two running backs in Geis and Peterson who could cause the Packers some problems. The Packers have had a couple of fortunate wins this season, but Rodgers is looking good, and it's, it's hard to see how they don't get the win here. And unless there's a good argument that you've got to suggest otherwise? I don't think I have that argument at this number specifically, if you're looking at Washington plus 13. As you mentioned, this has come down off of the plus 14. So early movement on Washington. And I think that's right. And really it carries over a lot from what we saw last week, a game where I was pretty big on Washington myself. Washington wants to run the football, right? Since the coaching change, Uh, Their pass rate has dropped from one of the eight highest in the NFL to one of the eight lowest. And this is a team that succeeds when they run the football. They do so very well. And they exploited a huge weakness in the Carolina Panthers a week ago by doing just that. And when the run game is working, Dwayne Haskins doesn't have as much pressure on his shoulders. And this offense looks fairly competent. And now matched up against the Green Bay Packers, if Green Bay struggles with one thing more so defensively than others, It's defending the run, where they're 31st in rush defense success rate for the season. So I have to think that Washington has really not much of an additional game plan to add on what they took into Carolina and where they had a lot of success doing so. So you think about just how low variance the Washington Redskins games are. Look at a total here of 41.5 with 13 points to the dog. Really difficult to make the case for Green Bay in this spot, considering how... Uh, really inflated the Packers are. And that's a difficult thing for me to say, considering my preseason positions, but it's true, right? You look at the Green Bay Packers, minus 0.5 in net yards per play. That's, uh, if if you're giving up half a yard more than you're gaining on a per play basis, that's not a good long-term outlook for your team overall. Suggest so you should be below average when the season is over and Green Bay obviously standing in a very different position. So, uh, can't make a case here for Green Bay laying this many points. And we're already we're two games into this week, and we're probably going to talk a lot more about it as we go through the games, but the running the football is, is coming up quite a bit. What happened to the start of the season where running the ball was redundant? Well, yeah, and it's, it's something I'm sort of aware of. Um, it's a little, it's interesting from a couple of regards, and I'm not sure the best way to answer this, but on one hand, when I find myself getting really caught up in a lot of these matchups and focusing on running the ball and to an extent disregarding the pass, um, I find myself sort of hesitant just knowing how more efficient throwing the football is and compared to running the football. Then on the other hand, if I just tend to ignore this, then I think that you skip over what the biggest matchup advantage is. And It's a really sort of give and take situation where you don't want to sort of overfit and get too granular with the handicap. But on the other side, you don't want to ignore what really rounds that handicap out. So what I've sort of uh, adjusted within the season on is looking at teams and just how they play stylistically. When we're talking about Washington and Baltimore specifically, these are two teams that run the football at an extremely high percentage, right? It's the identity of their offense. It's what their play calling goes around and is built around. So it's something that I'm aware of in handicapping. And it's something that in some cases I'll sort of be hesitant when I'm looking at a card and I'm looking at eight bets and they're all based off the the success teams will have running the football. Um, Certainly a reason for hesitation, but it it just really comes down to how the team is built overall and schematically because I don't think You want to ignore something that's vital to a team that presents an advantage in your handicapping when you're looking at both sides of the equation. So now we've got the San Francisco 49ers at the New Orleans Saints and some money coming on the 49ers here and enough to take them off the plus three. We're now down to New Orleans Saints minus two and a half and the over-under has dropped a touch from 44 and a half or two 44 and a half, and it looks pretty solid there. So both teams 10 and two. The 49ers made it difficult for the Ravens last week. They looked like they could do the same again this week. I know you've got your concerns over Breeze and you have to say the schedule's been pretty straightforward for the Saints as well. So who are you taking to get the win here? Well, uh, we don't have to talk about the running game in this one because I think that the advantage here really lies for the San Francisco defense matched up against the New Orleans 
passing offense. As you mentioned, I've got concerns about Breeze, and I think that anybody who uses the eye test to sort of judge these games and judge these performances will see that there's clearly been an enormous adjustment made by the Saints offensively to sort of disguise that weakness of arm strength as much as possible. You don't have to look very far either. The Saints' uh, main Twitter account for the team uh, routinely each week, they'll post the Drew Brees best throws video. If you watch the details of that video, you'll see he makes 25 to 30 throws, and about two of them are further down the field than 10 to 15 yards. So everything for the Saints is very conservative underneath, and really the only deep threat that the team has, I know Tag Ginn has speed, but the only reliant deep threat that they have is when you're looking at the team throwing the Michael Thomas and the San Francisco 49ers, the way that they play defensively with the amount of speed that they have, but also how great they are in coverage. Uh, they don't have to bring more than four people up front to generate pressure. So that's going to open up an additional defensive back on the field to double Michael Thomas, something that teams just haven't been able to do because of how our New Orleans can sort of threaten you up front. And where I think the front four for San Francisco has success is looking at the Saints offensive line where they're potentially, probably, most likely to be without two of their guards if you're reading between the lines uh, of what's coming out of practice and some of those reports. So it's just a really good matchup for what the 49ers do well. San Francisco stayed on the East Coast for an extra week of prep rather than flying back after the game last week against Baltimore. So they're in Florida right now going to make the short trip to New Orleans a little bit later today. And I think that this matchup and game sets up well. When you consider how big the handle for this game is as the marquee game of the early card on Sunday, the move from three and a half, and that three and a half was not a flat three and a half. It was a three and a half tilting towards the Saints, potentially going to four. You look at that from three and a half, now down to a two and a half tilting towards two in favor of the 49ers. Two point favorites, still the Saints, but tilting towards the Niners going lower. That's a very significant move. So I think that's telling of what we're going to see on Sunday. And how long is it before we see at Adam Chernoff on Twitter posting out Drew Brees' worst throws from the weekend? Well, I'm not going to have to do it because the Saints' main Twitter account is going to do it for them. So <laughs> you can just follow that. Like, it's just watch the highlights. Like, he's one hopping balls to receivers. There's his best throws are five yard dump offs to running backs out of the backfield. That it, it, everything's just forced right now for Breeze and the Saints' offense. Right, we'll move on. Cincinnati Bengals at the Cleveland Browns and the market not really buying into the traders' thoughts here. They thought the Browns could be bigger on the handicap, but betters have taken the Bengals enough to drop them down. And it's now Cleveland minus seven and a half. We've got another points total that's dropping from 42 and, 42 and a half to 41 and a half. And Dalton back in for the Bengals. They obviously got their first win. The Browns, meanwhile, they got those faint hopes of making the, pro, the playoffs. The, the consensus seems to be that they're going to get the win here, but maybe not as comfortably as people th first thought. So one, do you think they get the win? And, and two, are those playoff hopes still alive? Uh, yes, they'll get the win. Yes, their playoff hopes are still alive. And I'll add point number three that this line move is, I don't what what do you, silly, comical, mental. I don't know what the right adjective is to describe this line move in favor of Cincinnati. Uh, to put this number in perspective, the look-ahead lines that Las Vegas casinos had was 10 and a half in favor of the Cleveland Browns. This opened at eight and it's now down to a flat seven, so, which is just, it's an absurd number based on what the Cincinnati Bengals have done. But, and I'm going to give a little metaphor analogy here. I look at the NFL season, if you're just putting sort of a, just describing the season overall, uh, I compare it to rowing a boat across a lake, a very big lake, right? When you start the season, you get in the boat and you begin and you can still reference the shore, right? We have all the preseason handicaps. We have all the work that goes in in August leading up to the season. And like, there's a gauge that everybody has on a team and everyone's really aligned with their thought process because there's like a certain way to think when you're trying to get the better of the number and, and you don't see much disagreement within that. And every sort of surprise or adjustment is accounted for. And it, there's just that reference point, but there's a time when you're going across the lake where you can no longer see the shore behind you. 
and you're waiting to see the shore in front of you. And that's where when we get contrasting results in games, like we're getting with this one, we saw the Cincinnati Bengals beat the New York Jets, Andy Dalton return, and all that hype came around the Bengals being a better team. And then the Cleveland Browns go to Pittsburgh and they end up embarrassing themselves and potentially throwing away a little bit of their playoff hopes. So when we're talking about contrasting results, when there's no reference point behind, you get overreactions like this based off the last week results that don't make any sense. And this one doesn't make any sense either. And I think it's just because nobody knows where these two teams are that we're seeing this disagreement and this hype of what Cincinnati did last week is taking over. But at the end of the day, if we're looking back on what happened last week to cause this overreaction, the Cincinnati Bengals played a mangled New York Jets secondary. That's comparable to a practice squad. We're probably going to see it exposed to an extent this week. But the Bengals only put up 4.4 yards per pass and 1.8 yards per rush. I know the scoreboard said that they controlled that game and dominated, but that was anything but a good offensive performance. So it's, I don't know why this move is coming in as it is. I don't get the overreaction. Cincinnati, they've scored 20 points or more just twice this season, and both of those were against opponents that ranked 29th and 21st in defensive efficiency. Against 10, their top 10 passing defensive opponents, they've averaged 13 points in those games. Like this is a putrid offense. And they're getting a very difficult matchup here on the road against the Cincinnati or yeah, Cleveland secondary that's trending upwards in every single direction. So this is a spot where, much like we saw what Cleveland did to the Miami Dolphins, uh, they can potentially put up 30-plus points here, I think, pretty comfortably. It's their second easiest matchup in terms of an opposing defense this season. I just don't get the line movement. If you're looking at seven, you got to take the Browns here. You've got the opening line podcast, uh unrivaled NFL expert insight and beautiful scenic descriptions in one. Oh, it's, it's a very well-rounded show. That we're <laughs> what more could here. you want? Nothing, nothing. I could have, I could have even spruced up the lake metaphor there a little <laughs> bit, but I think it's, it's the way that I think best illustrates sort of this lack of reference point that betters have about teams in this part of the season. That makes sense. And we'll move on and hopefully more insight in this one because it's the Carolina Panthers at the Atlanta Falcons and seen enough here to move the Falcons from minus two to minus three. And yet again, it's a total that's dropped a point from 48 to 47. I don't think Matt Ryan is looking forward to the Panthers pass rush, given how little he's been protected this year. And they could turn to Freeman to try and limit going through the air. And that's probably where the Panthers are weakest and maybe one to watch. We've got the benefit of this matchup being played a few weeks ago as well. So are you paying much attention to that, or is, is there anything in the season-long numbers that can help us analyze this one a bit better? Well, the season-long numbers are not good for either of these teams when you're looking on the defensive side of the football. Atlanta, 31st in passing success rate defense. The Carolina Panthers, 30th in rushing success rate defense. So there's a pretty clear sort of path to how you want to attack both of these teams. Uh, Carolina dumps Ron Rivera, which was a very odd timing to get rid of your head coach, considering where this team is and how they've been performing. So I think that just the overall doubt of this team and where they're at sort of from a mental standpoint is factoring into this line a little bit. Uh, but it's difficult not to say the same thing about Atlanta. So I'm not really sure why the movement up here from two to three now looking like it's going to get to three and a half, that's getting a little bit ridiculous. If you're the Atlanta Falcons, you're trying to put together a game plan. It's pretty clear. The Carolina defensive line, they play a 3-4 defense. So the nose tackle position is extremely important, more so than other teams that will play different alignments for three or um, anything outside of their base. They lost Kawan short um, in the first quarter of the season. He was their starting nose tackle. And their run game, as well as the pressure that they generate on opposing quarterbacks, has really taken a dip since. And where this now gets compounded, and was really part of the reason for my Washington handicap last week, is Dontari Poe, another defensive line starter, but the guy who moved in to the nose tackle position to make up for Kawan Short, also got injured. So now the Carolina Panthers really without an answer in the middle of their defensive line. They haven't really gone out and acquired anyone to do that. So there's a huge weakness in the middle of this defensive line. And it's not only making them very vulnerable to the run, 
but it's preventing them from being able to generate any pressure. And it's also putting extra pressure on the secondary as well. If we look at these trending numbers for Carolina, they're 14th in passing success rate for the season. Uh, but since short is out, that drops to 22nd. And if we're looking last week as well, and we're accounting for the Washington Redskins game, it's trending all the way to 24th in the NFL. So everything's going in the wrong direction for this Carolina Panthers defense. And it starts up front in the middle. I'm not sure Atlanta is going to be able to take advantage of that. Um, Freeman just back from the injury. He hasn't really been a huge part of the game planning for the Falcons this entire season. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what Atlanta comes out and, and does. But uh, with Carolina having a pretty big advantage throwing the football against this Atlanta Falcons secondary, the points here are a little bit tempting, especially if this gets to three and a half. So with the way that this line is trending and potentially moving up to three and a half, I think just wait on the sidelines a little bit. But if three and a half hits the board, I would be very surprised if there's not money coming back the other way on Carolina. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to know how much of that is a reaction to the coaching situation. But so, so when you're approaching games like this or any game where there's a coaching change, surely not much can change in such a short space of time. So how do you approach it when, when a coach leaves or, or a new coach comes in? Once upon a time when I was still young and just getting into this, the firing of a head coach the next week was an extremely popular play amongst people with influence in the market. And the idea was always that a team is sort of at rock bottom. They get rid of the coach, which was typically the one person that was holding the team back, for example, potentially with the Dallas Cowboys. Um, but you get the situation where sort of that issue is removed from the picture. It's a new sort of fresh look for, for players who are likely if your coach is fired, you're in a pretty bad situation overall in terms of the standings. It's probably a little bit later in the season. So players are really playing for their job within the new coaching staff and the organization going forward with something to prove. So it was like a really good playoff spot. That's been accounted for within the market and that adjustment has been made from some of these prices. Um, but it's interesting with the Panthers. I mean, they've lost four games in a row. Uh, but this was a team that was in playoff contention just a little bit earlier in November. So a couple of crippling losses uh, going back to that Packers game where they were in an inch short of the victory. But, I mean, the last three weeks, they were competitive with the Saints and missed a field goal at the end of the game that could have given them the win. As I mentioned, against the Packers, they were an inch short on the goal line. Um, against the Redskins, they completely mailed it in. But it's not like this is a team that's been struggling throughout the entire season. They've really made a lot of what they have with the quarterback situation. So it's just a weird firing overall. Um, and I can see where this is sort of a case where it moves against it. And there's just like, like I said, some doubt around the team just because it was such an odd timing. But um, it, it's not something that I'm really factoring into this game in terms of a handicap angle one way or the other. And now we've got the Miami Dolphins at the New York Jets and the Jets still favourites for this one. They're now down to minus five after opening up at minus five and a half. And we've actually got a points total that's gone up since opening here is now 46 after starting on 44. And we've talked before on the podcast, as a lot, I'm sure a lot of other people have, about how good the Jets are against the run. But it's, it's obviously through the air that the Dolphins pose their biggest and, and probably only threat with Fitzpatrick and his reputation for going for broke and pulling something out of nothing and... With the Jets, I guess they could be forgiven for struggling against the elite teams in the league, but it's completely the opposite. Um, they obviously lost to the winless Bengals, but then they went down to the Dolphins in Week 8 when they were winless as well. So do you think the numbers for this one are fair, and, and how does either team go about getting the win here? So the last two weeks, or the last three weeks even now looking back, um, I've been consistently on Jets overs. Because I think that the offense, it looks extremely good against weak defenses. And the defense, which is just riddled with injuries, uh, has the potential to play up to average against weak offenses. And that was sort of the case um, that we saw with a couple of those games. So it, it was good over spots the last couple of weeks. And the points in the first half really suggested it was going over. And then both the game against the Raiders and the game last week against the Bengals absolutely fell off a cliff in the third quarter. Um, so it, it's not a surprise to see Jets totals 
continuing to be bet up. When you look at all the injuries that they have, Jamal Adams has yet to practice. Maurice Canada has yet to practice. Arthur Malay has yet to practice. Brian Poole has yet to practice. And if those names don't sound familiar to you outside of Jamal Adams, it's probably because they shouldn't because they're all backup players within the secondary and they're all injured this week. So you're looking at three different cornerbacks, two safeties, all potentially going to be out for this game. And the Jets are already down to reserves in that position. So as you mentioned, for the Dolphins, it's all about passing. Ryan Fitzpatrick was the league leader in intended air yards, which reflects how far he is throwing downfield to his receivers on every single play. He lost Preston Williams a couple weeks ago. He's now down to seventh in that regard. So we've seen a noticeable hit in terms of how deep he's throwing down the field. The aggression level is still there in terms of where he's willing to throw the football into tight windows. Um, But the depth is really not there as well. So it's a bit of a give and take in that regard. Um, But this total, uh, the last meeting between these two teams in the beginning of November, uh, it opened below 40 and it took a lot of effort to get bet up ultimately went through the 41 now we're looking at about a six point adjustment and within that matchup which presented a lot of similar advantages both teams were just five yards per play which would put them uh, near the bottom in the nfl in terms of performance on a per game basis so it's not like that first game was super explosive i think to an extent this is a bit of an overreaction but if you got one of those early numbers like a 43 where this total open uh, you're sitting on a really good ticket but i'm not really running to grab the 46 and go over that just knowing how these games have fell off a cliff for the jets in the past couple of weeks and for anyone out there that's that's kind of handicapping and taking their betting seriously and they want to analyze rosters in depth and things like that how far down do you go you're talking about these relative unknowns that you're, you're naming there how far do you, when you're looking at rosters, how many how many names and backups of backups do you look at and kind of analyze in, in any actual detail? Well, they're relatively unknowns, but they're the starters for the Jets, which talks about how bad the secondary is in terms of the situation that they're dealing with for injuries. Um, if you're looking to evaluate rosters and injuries within football and betting, there's one thing you have to look for, and it's the term is called cluster injuries. So you're looking for a number of different injuries at a certain position. So in the case of the Jets this week, they have five different starters from their secondary, which are on the injury report as did not practice or limited practice. So when you're talking about five position players within a certain personnel group, obviously that devalues the team pretty considerably. Because if you're looking at just single players here and there at a certain position, there's usually not a significant gap in terms of the replacement level behind them uh, when you're getting outside a quarterback and kind of like skilled players throughout the roster, key running backs, key wide receivers, which will sort of be worth like a point to a point and a half at the most. Um, but really what you want to focus on is those cluster injuries. So look for any, any team that's dealing with a number of injuries at a certain position or within a certain personnel unit because uh, that's where there's going to be sort of a widespread downgrade in terms of the teams for that unit. Right, our next game is the Indianapolis Colts at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and we've seen a bit of movement on the over under here. It's another one that's dropped 49.5 to 47.5. The handicap, meanwhile, is still on the Buccaneers minus three, and if anything, it's more, moving more in their favor, but maybe not enough to get them to minus four and beyond. We know we're talking about running. We know the Buccaneers carry the ball a lot. They aren't great with it, but they just don't like to go through the air, it seems. And, and thankfully for them, the, the Colts are pretty poor against the run. So, I mean, as for the Colts, it was a lot of talk about Brissett before the start of the season. He's done okay, looked pretty shaky at times. The Colts are on the road, they're underdogs. Um, do you agree with that, or is there any way they can get the win here? So, let's go back to that game last Sunday for the Colts against the Titans. They were kicking a field goal to take a lead with five minutes to play in the fourth quarter. So they were looking to go up 20 to 17 after kicking that field goal. Instead, the field goal is blocked, returned for a touchdown, and then the Titans end up adding another garbage time touchdown after an interception two plays later. So it went from a matter of Colts going up 20 to 17 to all of a sudden the Colts losing 31 to 17 
within the matter of about 45 seconds late in the fourth quarter. And if we're looking at sort of the body of work overall that the Colts put together, this offense for Indianapolis last week was as banged up and injured of a unit as any team has dealt with this entire season. You can make the case that at least their top four playmakers on offense were out. I would make the case that it was five. Jack Doyle at tight end became their leading receiver. The Indianapolis Colts outgained the Tennessee Titans 5.8 to 5.0 in terms of yards per play. They put up more than 100 total yards, and they turned the ball over one additional time than the Tennessee Titans. And this was a team that was kicking a field goal to go up three points. And as banged up as this unit was, the Indianapolis Colts still threw for over 300 yards passing and 7.2 yards per pass. And the defense for Indianapolis was able to limit this upstart Tennessee Titans offense that everybody's raving about to just 4.9 yards per pass and 138 total yards. So the box score in that game was extremely misleading against the Indianapolis Colts. And now we see a bit of a reaction in, in favor of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers pushing this price up to a very cheap three. You can even get probably a three and a half on a very low buy. I don't agree with that whatsoever. And I think that offense on defense, this is a very difficult matchup for Tampa Bay and what they want to do. Indianapolis, a very underrated secondary uh, that can really slow the Tampa Bay Buccaneers down, throwing the football where Jameis is most comfortable and put some pressure on this Buccaneers offensive line to hold up in the trenches. The other way around, This is going to be the best offensive line that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defensive front seven has faced this entire season. Marlon Mack going to play in this game as well. So that's a nice boost for the Colts offensively. I don't buy this adjustment. I think the Indianapolis Colts are live to win this game outright. And of course, if anyone's read your article on reading box scores in more details, they'll know just how misleading that Colts result was. 100%. Right, now we've got the LA Chargers at the Jacksonville Jaguars and you said earlier in the week that the Chargers always seem to be betting by the market and surprise, surprise, they've moved to minus three after being minus two and a half. Um, not much change on the over-under. Meanwhile, as we're on the 43 that we opened at, this one seems pretty simple. I mean, the Jags are just poor on defense. They struggle against the run. They're missing Jalen Ramsey against the pass. Not really sure what to make of their offense and it seems like their coaching staff can't make their mind up either. I know it's a long trip for the Chargers and there isn't really much to play for, but the market seems to think they're worth the, th- worth the three and, and maybe more. Do you agree with that? I think it gets to three and a half. And I guess if I do this for as long as I do every single week, it's good to get a line move right occasionally. And I think that's the case in this one. So uh, a minor pat on the back for this one. But as you mentioned, there's no surprise that the Chargers, given the talent on their roster, is always going to draw attention. I think there's growing doubts about the viability as Philip Rivers continuing as a quarterback. I don't know if there's going to be a change here, but there were sort of murmurs that maybe uh, he might be showing the bench. I, I don't know if I buy into that, but this is going to be an easy matchup for the, the LA Chargers offense overall as a unit. The Jacksonville defense since Jalen Ramsey departed, allowing a whopping 52% of passes against the great successful and on the season, They're allowing 51% of rushes to grade successful too. And if you put your eye test to the game and you watch the highlights, you watch the coaches film, you watch the expanded angles, there's really not too much that any player within the Jacksonville Jaguars secondary is playing for. It's pretty depressing to look at the effort that they're putting in. And I don't like to sit wearing a tinfoil hat and sort of speculate that any team is tanking or throwing it in or quitting on their organization. But... Uh, If I was to put one on right now, I could probably make the case that the Jaguars are doing just that. So uh, there's a clear push to get Doug Marone out as a head coach. And I think that that could well reflect itself. We're seeing the Chargers here. Um, If you just put this in a ratings perspective, really, depending on what you give the Jags as home field advantage, about five points better than the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, That's a pretty big number. So I think that the price here, Really indicative of what we're seeing from the Jags. And now Gardner Minshew back and starting. So uh, I think I've made my feelings about him pretty clear here on the podcast. So it's becoming like a bit of a point to prove on the offense, but in a more detrimental sense than it is um, sort of a positive one. So this is just a 
a rough matchup all overall, and I think that the line move here uh, pretty telling of what we could expect on Sunday. Yeah, I was going to ask Foles versus Minshew, but I mean, I definitely know. I think anyone that listens to this podcast knows as well. Yeah, it's just I, I don't know if there's more news into it in terms of Foles not being 100% or whether or not he was rushed back for like a last-ditch playoff push, um, but it, it just seems like a bizarre decision in a season filled with them for the Jags coaching staff to put Minshew back. And now we've got the Kansas City Chiefs at the New England Patriots and pat on the back again, another one that we did a pretty good job of calling. We said that that minus two and a half on the Patriots might have been a clever move by the traders to try and get some reactionary money on the Chiefs. And, and since then, they've been happy to move them out to minus three. And if anything, they're trending further that way. And focus seems to be on the handicap for this one because the over-under opened at 48 and a half and it's still on that mark. Should be a good game here. I think you've You've said about your um, your power ratings, they're two fairly evenly matched sides. So I'm just going to let you explain why. Yeah, so I guess I'll throw one back at you from because I, I'm trying to remember back to Monday. So that two and a half that the traders put out was to get Kansas City money. Is there sort of siding with New England? Am I, I'm reading that the wrong way. Yeah, I think it was a move to, to post it at that mark, knowing that people would buy straight into Kansas City after the Patriots' loss. And then, obviously, as we've seen, they're, they're more than happy to move it out and money's now coming in for the Patriots. That's So it, it's interesting because I think that, that the perception of both of these teams was nailed right there. And we recorded just after that Sunday night football game. So uh, there was clearly... If you watch that game on Sunday Night Football, it was pretty grim for the Patriots. Second time in prime time on Sunday night that we've seen them really get embarrassed by their opponent. The other reference would be that Baltimore game where, I mean, I look at the Ravens and the Texans and what they did in both of those spots. We saw the playbook emptied in both of those situations. And obviously this New England Patriots defense is not as good as sort of the numbers reflect. If you look since that schedule drop is what I'm calling it, they played a historically easy first seven weeks of the season. You just sort of filter it out and you look at the comparable numbers. So since week eight, New England has dropped to 14th in pass success rate defense from number two on the season overall. And then they've dropped to 16th in rushing success rate defense from fifth for the season overall, if we're just looking at weeks 8 to 13 when the schedule became considerably more difficult for the New England Patriots. So I think that now the defense is sort of adjusted. We know what we're getting from them. Um, And offensively, in this matchup specifically, I look back to that game on Sunday night, and we it was really the first time in the second half all season that we've seen New England get back to what they did well. And I thought it was very interesting how The Texans played a very specific type of defense. They had six defensive backs on the field. They were doubling Julian Edelman, and the Patriots were moving him over, isolated on one side of the football field. So when when you do that and you have three receivers on the other side of the formation, you're going to get single coverage on those three receivers on the other side of the field because there's just not enough guys on the Houston defense to have more personnel on that side of the field if they're doubling Edelman all the way over on the other side. So... It really became a pretty elementary decision for Tom Brady in the pocket on what he wanted to do with the football. He could either target his running back, which he started to do when he got the matchup on linebackers because the Texans had an additional defensive back on the field. That defensive back could travel with James White out of the backfield and follow him around when it's a DB on a running back. It's a much less favorable matchup for the offense than it is if it's a running back on a linebacker. But the choices that Brady was making and this offense was making was really interesting because they would consistently have one-on-one coverage with their three wide receivers. And essentially you're getting a 50-50 ball if you're putting it out there. But we just didn't see any connection between the offense trying to do that. So then the Patriots tried to get creative with Edelman, moving him around, making it more difficult to double team when he's closer to the line of scrimmage. And they had a little bit of success doing that, but it wasn't until they found a way to unlock James White in the backfield and get him on a linebacker that this offense really started to move the football. And part of that is how soft Houston plays as a defense. But my hope for New England going forward is that sort of got them back to what they do well, and that's get the ball out to running backs. If you think back to this exact matchup, New England-Kansas City, the two times that they played last year, 
outside of the third and 10 completion to Gronkowski in overtime, New England was consistently relying on their trio of running backs to make plays both in the running game and in the passing game. That was the identity of their offense, and that opened up everything else. So I'm hoping for the sake of New England going forward, because I do like their prospects going long term. I still have them second in my power ratings in the league. If they're able to get back to doing that well, it takes a lot of pressure off of their young receivers, and it's going to open up opportunities to get the ball to Edelman as well. And I think matched up against Kansas City, the Chiefs 31st in rushing defensive success rate tied with the Green Bay Packers for the second worst mark in the NFL. This is a spot where New England, who was not in any pressure whatsoever or concerned about moving the football against the Chiefs twice last season, can get back to that same matchup, and I think that they can have success. On the other side of the field, it works out really well for them, too. The New England Patriots defense perfectly matched up to go against Patrick Mahomes. They play the highest rate of man coverage in the league. That's where Mahomes struggles most, and his defensive front, very good at containing quarterbacks in the pocket. So Mahomes has struggled the last couple of games, failing to break 200 yards. I think this is a spot where we see the New England Patriots defense uh, sort of contain this Chiefs offense. And it's a pretty competitive, lower-scoring game. But I think the Patriots have a nice matchup advantage on both sides of the football. And now we've got the Pittsburgh Steelers at the Arizona Cardinals. And the over-under was meant to be of a bit of a tempter here for betters on, in terms of the under. And while that's now where we're seeing the money go, it's, it's still on the same number that opened at. And the Steelers on the handicap, they're edging towards the three. They opened up at minus one and are now minus two and a half. Probably a bit surprising to see the Steelers still in contention for the playoffs, given the issues that they've had at quarterback. And, uh, well, their success has been built on defense, really, hasn't it? In, in particular, that pass rush and a pass rush that's probably not good news for a rookie quarterback who's been getting sacked all season. So I guess the question here is, does Hodges have enough to, to build on his side strong defense and get past the Cardinals? The Pittsburgh offense looks a lot different with Hodges in than it does with Mason Rudolph. We saw Hodges willing to throw the football downfield pretty well at will uh, against the Cleveland Browns secondary, which is one of the top 10 units in the NFL. Now he goes to Arizona, controlled surface. 32nd are the Arizona Cardinals in pass success rate defense. Even with Patrick Peterson, this unit has not been able to improve. I, I think that Pittsburgh has, has a plenty of opportunity here to move the football. But I also think Arizona has the opportunity to move the football as well. They're matched up against this Pittsburgh Steelers defense. The one spot where you've sort of been able to move the football on them is running the football on the ground. And Arizona, really efficient when they run the football. And you consider the Steelers' pressure up front and how that matches up. This is a nice opportunity, I think, for Arizona to move the football as well. We've seen this total set at 43.5 for the entire week. Uh, I have some thoughts on where that's going to go and potentially an opportunity to take advantage of, but let's see how this number moves in the next sort of 12 to 24 hours. And obviously a lot of early season doubts about Kyler Murray at quarterback for the Cardinals. Is that, have they been alleviated or are there, are there still question marks over him? Do you think? I think so. And the way that the coaching staff is sort of owning up to some of these defeats, uh, everything's still staying really positive and you still get the feeling that there's a lot of work being put in every week with it being a rookie head coach and quarterback. Uh, I, I think that overall for the season, it would be nice for Arizona as an organization to grab another win or two down the stretch to take sort of a positive sentiment out of the season rather than finish on a lengthy losing streak. So um, certainly some urgency from the Cardinals, and I think overall it's been a success, but if they can grab another win or two, uh, that'll certainly be big for the organization as a whole. Our next game is the Tennessee Titans at the Oakland Raiders, and this potentially another game that the traders were, were testing the waters early on with those low limits. They opened it just below the three, but it's now moved out to Tennessee minus three, and, and it looks pretty solid there. We've seen a slight bump in the total from 46.5 to 47, so... Another two teams that are hanging around the playoff picture. They'll be, they'll be desperate for the win. What do you think of this matchup? It, it went straight through the three, and then it actually came back a little, and now we're back again to the three. So sort of a lot of disagreement going back and forth between these numbers. Obviously, Tennessee on the ground running the football is going to be very difficult for Oakland to stop just based on how the Raiders' defense is comprised. But as I mentioned with that Indianapolis game, the Tennessee Titans passing offense with Ryan Tannehill I mean, Tannehill's putting up top five numbers in the league for key passing stats since he took over for Mariota back seven weeks ago. 
Uh, this is an offense that's getting a ton of praise, and I, I don't know if it's entirely deserving. We saw them play their first real difficult opponent in the Indianapolis Colts, and the Colts shut them down for four quarters, despite what the scoreboard says. I will say that they're going to have opportunities to throw against the Raiders. 28th in defensive pass success rate are the Oakland Raiders. So this is a spot where Tennessee probably going to be pretty comfortable running or passing on offense. You'd like to think that the Raiders can exploit this enormous liability that is the Tennessee Titans secondary. But one thing that the Raiders, as we've seen in the last four to five weeks, are really unable to do is push the ball downfield and threaten teams deep, which is where this Titans defense is the weakest. So not a great matchup for Oakland. I, I Really not a, a side or a total that I'm too interested in playing. And now we've got the Seattle Seahawks at the LA Rams. And I mean, this one could fall either side below the three and could easily just end up as a pick as well. We're, we're probably going to see some movement, but I'm not sure how telling it will actually be before game day. The over-under is the opposite. It looks pretty solid at 46 and a half. Both teams obviously coming in off a big win, trying to keep their run going. I'm not going to be the one that goes through their, that Jared Goff checklist of yours, but I mean, the Seahawks, can they can definitely put them under pressure, but they've got to be wary of that threat posed by Todd, Todd Gurley. Um, a tough one to call. Do you want to take a crack at it? Well, surprisingly, and I think you illustrated a good point, the Seattle defense with the names that they have up front really garners a lot of attention from betters because of the suspected pressure that they can put on opposing quarterbacks. But Seattle's fourth worst in pressure rate this season through 13 weeks. So when we go through the Jared Goff betting checklist, is he at home? Yes. Is he laying points? Not yet. The Rams are going to close as favorites, so not yet. And will he be under pressure? And I think the answer is pretty comfortably going to be no which is going to surprise a lot of people. And if we look back to the first meeting between these two teams, I think his performance was reflected of that. Threw for just less than 400 yards, but he got 49 pass attempts in that game. And if you're a team that's game planning and you're concerned that your quarterback, which is absolute, absolute, under pressure (laughs) you're not going to let him throw the football 49 times so i think that that's really reflective of how confident the rams are at letting him throw against the seattle defense which is still in many regards a huge question mark 22nd in pass success rate defense for the season and 17th against the run the rams nearly went off for the record of total yards in a game against the Arizona Cardinals before they hit the brakes in the fourth quarter. But through three quarters, they were well on pace for the all-time NFL record that dates back to the 1950s. So the thing that's really significant about that is that the Rams from weeks 9 to 12, they faced teams that ranked third, eighth, and fourth plus a bye in, in those four weeks in pass defense efficiency. So this was a team that the perception really shifted. There was that whole moment where people were concerned about Sean McVay and what's wrong with this offense. We know that it's the interior of the offensive line, but there was concerns that 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 creativity and that explosiveness was gone. But really, they were just playing difficult opponents for that four-week span that was sort of extended by the bye, which made it seem like a lot longer than it was. That game against Arizona was really a reprieve for the first time for the Rams since early October Arizona, Arizona 29th in overall defensive efficiency. Now for the second week in a row, the Rams get a, an easy opponent. Seattle very much a step down, as I mentioned, in terms of what the Rams have faced the last couple of weeks prior to Arizona. So this is another spot where I think the Rams are going to be pretty comfortable on offense. And then the L.A. defense, top six in Russian passing success rate for the season since acquiring Jalen Ramsey. This is sort of marred by that Baltimore Ravens absolute demolition. I don't think many people really giving this Rams defense the respect that it deserves. Seattle Seahawks for the season, plus 0.0 in net yards per play. If you're a team that is giving up as many yards as you're gaining on a per play basis, you should not be eight wins above 500. So some very misleading results for the Seattle Seahawks, there's a reason that this number is coming down and is going to continue to move in favor of the LA Rams. Rams will close his favorite. Rams will cover and the Rams will win on Sunday Night Football. And I will leave the Jared Goff checklist to the pros.
it's very real. Final game, New York Giants at the Philadelphia Eagles. Market confidence is back with the Eagles despite that blip last week. They've moved out to minus 10 after opening up at minus 8.5. The over-under seems to have settled on that 45.5 mark. And both of these teams struggle against the pass. And while the Giants might also want to turn to the run, the Eagles are pretty good at stopping that side of the game as well. The Eagles have got a big game against the Cowboys coming up, obviously, but they're not going to be wanting to take anything for granted. I, I don't know what to read into the return of Eli Manning. It's obviously his final few games for the Giants. I'm sure you're not concerned with that, but is it going to be as easy as the, the numbers suggest for the Eagles? Well, to go back to the middle of the season when we did a show and I was pretty bullish on the Philadelphia Eagles futures, all of a sudden after those tickets were burned by a lot of people last Sunday when they lost to the Dolphins, very much alive with a win against the Giants, still setting up that game against the Cowboys in a couple of weeks to decide that division. I There was a time in NFL markets where correlation was very real, and the line movements will reflect that. And it just hasn't been the case this season. And what I mean by that is one result should lead to another reaction. So with the Cowboys losing on Thursday night football, in theory, now the Philadelphia Philadelphia Eagles, their season is back alive, right? And so once upon a time, this number would have been bet up pretty significantly following the Thursday night football result, just given how it changes the scope of this Monday night football game. But we haven't seen this number move at all since that result on Thursday night football. So it's either saying that this number is already quite inflated because the Giants are starting an elderly man at quarterback who looks like a 60-year-old running across the street to grab the morning paper in a bathrobe when he's running away from defensive tackles trying to sack him. He hasn't thrown a pass in over three months. Um, so it, it's, I mean, it's either the point that this number is inflated that high already that there's just not that interest, but I found it, I found it sort of different that we're, we're just not seeing those sort of correlated result movements like we did once upon a time in the NFL markets. But, I mean, this is a complete mismatch on both sides of the field. Uh, not much more to say about that. If you can tease the Eagles down below 3.5 with a 6.5-point teaser, my goodness, um, this could get ugly for the Giants on the road in Philly on Monday. Well, there we go. Time has flown by today, but we covered all the games that we got listed on, on Pinnacle.com. I said at the start, you do all the hard work, Adam, here, so appreciate what you've shared, and I know our listeners do too. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to take a look at the odds and get involved in the act- in the action, then head over to Pinnacle.com. We'll be back again next week with our early odds analysis. But until then, good luck with any bets, and remember to please gamble responsibly. 